All right, all right. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Uh, I was doing better before my Adobe decided to update when I need to open my notes. So uh, let me uh, do this little favor here. All right, I'm turning my computer back on, my iPad back on, and hopefully it'll open up. If not, Daniel, would you bring me my phone right there, please? Yeah, that phone right there. That'd be great. Uh, I don't know that uh, there's a joy about using technology and there's a frustration about using technology as well uh, and that is my notes are on that iPad there we go it's updating there we go sorry about that um, if you don't know me already you uh, will see as happened just now I am easily distracted and uh, I was easily distracted and panicked when my iPad uh, decided to flake out on me I am Alan I am glad that you are here I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Living Hope. We are absolutely thrilled that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, for those of you in the room uh, or in the building, I know we have some in other places in the building, welcome, welcome uh, to Living Hope. Those of you that are worshiping online, welcome to Living Hope as well. We are thrilled that all of you are here with us today. Many of you are church family already. You are members and you are actively involved and engaged in what's happening in the life of the church. If that's you, please be here next Sunday night at six o'clock. We want all of our members here for a very important night of worship and prayer and vision. And those of you that have maybe been here a little while, if you are interested in joining the church, we are having a membership class in a couple of weeks. And then those of you that are here for your very first time, welcome. We're glad that you chose to worship with us today. We are in the middle of a series walking through the New Testament this year. We're calling it New Testament Foundations or Foundations New Testament. And right now we are in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And on the back of your worship guide, you will see where we are in the reading plan. We're reading a chapter a day uh, throughout the New Testament. We are on John chapter 10 through 14 this week. But this morning, I'll be preaching from John chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open it to John 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are a couple of options. You can, if your phone is working right, unlike mine was a moment ago, you can uh, use a Bible app on your phone or you can grab a Bible that may be in a chair near you um, and you can utilize that as well. If you do not own a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you and that is our gift to you as a church, um, as a church family. You know, God reveals himself to us through his word. And when I say that God reveals himself to us through his word, there are two aspects of his word. One is, first and foremost, the word, which is Jesus Christ, his son. God has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. But he's also revealed himself to us in his word, his written word, the Bible, the scripture. And both of those are important. The reason the scripture is important is because it reveals to us who God is, who Jesus is, ultimately everything points to that fact, but the word, the written word, is the record of God, God's revelation to us. Uh, the Gospels, perhaps you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their sole purpose is to combine those two things, revealing Jesus and revealing, uh, re sharing with us a recorded aspect of, of the life of Christ. And so in the Gospels, we see this combination uh, of, of an account of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in the Gospel of John, which is what we're studying right now, we see that the writer of John, John himself, starts by making it clear that God, or that Jesus is God in the flesh. I said I'll be preaching from John chapter 9, but before I get there, 
if you don't mind, look with me in John chapter 1. It's referred to as the prologue. In verse 14, you can go back and read the verses leading up to that, but in verse 14, here is what John says. And I need you to know that whenever he uses the word, word here, he's actually referring to Jesus. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John, throughout his gospel then, begins to work off the premise of the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, and then he begins to show us Jesus' divinity, while he also shows us the humanity side of Jesus as well. But ultimately, John's preoccupation is to help us see that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And the way he does that primarily is through a couple of things, and that is signs and statements. In fact, that's what this uh, small series on the book of John is called, Signs and Statements. The reason we chose that title is because the two primary ways that John reveals Jesus to us are through signs and statements. The signs we talked about last week, if you were here with us last week, if you weren't, let me kind of bring you up to speed. A sign is basically a miracle that Jesus would do that has a deeper teaching to it than just the miracle itself. In other words, there's more than meets the eye. And then the other method that John uses is some statements. Maybe you've heard of them referred to as the I am statements. In fact, if you see the logo of the series, you may notice that the three letters I am are in red, and that is because it's the words of Jesus, I am. There are seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus will say, I am, and he tells what he is. This this morning, we'll be looking at uh, both a sign, which is a healing of a blind man, and a statement which is, in this occasion, I am, Jesus says, the light of the world. And the interesting thing, when Jesus makes these I am statements, it's not just telling us who he is, which it does, but the very words I am are critical. Because in the Old Testament, whenever the, the prophet uh, Moses was, uh, was, was uh, seeking to, to do the work of God and deliver the people of Israel from bondage, He said, before I go down there, tell me who you are. And God basically said, tell them that I am. And so when Jesus uses the phrase, I am anything, he's actually not just describing who he is, he's pointing to the fact that he is God. So we need to see those two things, statements, signs, and statements. Let's pick up the story, John chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll see both come out this morning. It's describing Jesus, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man, he's near the temple, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So there's the statement that he shares. This is the first I am statement. He actually uses it in chapter 8, and now he's describing it further. In verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. He goes on in verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, 
wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pause for just a moment. Let's look closely at what is taking place. Jesus in John chapter 8 had used the whole teaching opportunity to let the people know, I am the light of the world, and now he uses an illustration that literally happens as he literally heals a man that has been blind from birth and points to the fact that he truly is the light of the world. Can you imagine being that guy? He had been blind since he was born. He had sat near the temple begging and asking for help. There was no cure. There was no help. There was nothing that could be done for him. And so there he sat, just like any other day. And then Jesus shows up. I don't know whether the man heard him spit on the ground. You know what the sound of spit sounds like. I don't know whether he knew really what happened, but can you imagine Jesus literally spits on the ground, makes a little mud, smears it on the guy's face. The guy, if he knows it's spit and mud, is probably thinking, what in the world is going on? Why are we doing this? And then he doesn't heal him right away. Instead, he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash off. You see, it was the act of faith that Jesus could heal him as well as that obedience as he went and washed at the pool where Jesus sent him, not just any tap of water, but to a specific place, and then he came back seeing. Can you imagine the, the, the joy that man must have had? Can you imagine what it must have looked like as he walked through the city with mud caked on his face, even people knowing that mud didn't come from, from rain, it came from spit, and, and here is this guy going to wash off, and then whenever he is healed, the excitement that must have been there that he's healed now. And as amazing as a miracle of the healing of someone that has been blind from birth, he didn't regain his sight. This is the first time he's ever seen. As amazing as that miracle is, the biggest miracle is not, or the, the point of this miracle is not just the healing of this man, but rather it would point to something else. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, the disciples had asked, who had sinned? He says, it's not this man or his parents, but why is he healed? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. The reason this man was healed was so that God could receive the glory. You see, the disciples started from the wrong point. They did what so many people back then did, and maybe even today, and that is the premise was, if this guy can't see, it's only because of sin. So clearly, this man had either sinned to such a degree that he was blind, or his parents had sinned and caused it. But you see, the disciples were focused on the wrong thing. Rather, what Jesus says in verse 3 is, don't focus on the cause of the blindness, rather focus on the result, and that is the glory of God that's about to be revealed. In fact, the word is the word displayed. God's glory is going to be displayed. Last week, I preached in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 11 talks about how this sign that was, was happened that day where, they, where, where Jesus made water into wine in John chapter 2 was so that God's glory may be manifest or revealed. That word is the same word as we see here in verse 3. So both of these signs are done so that God's glory could be shown, so that Jesus would make known the glory of God. All too often, I think, you and I, 
are focused on the wrong thing. And in fact, the sermon's title this morning on the back of your sermon note says, What are you focused on? These disciples were focused on the wrong thing. All too often, we are focused on the wrong thing too. If life isn't going the way we want it to go, we want to know why. If, if things are not shaking out like we'd like them to, we're like, why is this happening to me? And it might be that you're having something horrible happen to you, similar to this guy who's blind. And it may seem like a valid question, why, why, why? But the answer is not so much why or the answer behind the why. Rather, the answer is found in the question of where is God in all of this? So instead of the disciples being worried or, or caught up on whose sin caused this, the disciples should have said, okay, Jesus, could you help us see how God is at work in the middle of this situation? Likewise, in our lives, whenever we find ourselves, whether things are going well or whether things are going poorly or just life is going on as a status quo, normal situation, in all of our settings, we should be actively considering and looking for how God is at work in our situation. And we see in this scenario that God definitely was at work. So, what I want us to see as we start together this morning is that what we focus on is really important. I don't know if you've been around me a lot in the office or not, but I, I wear bifocals. And the bifocals I wear are not actually on this pair of glasses. The bifocals are on this pair of glasses as well as this pair of glasses. And, and, and what I mean by that is I, I haven't gotten used to bifocals, but I cannot see up close the same way I can see out at a distance. And, and I need more help up close so that I can read. I need something stronger for that. And I need something weaker to look out to the crowd. So if I was wearing my best glasses in this moment to read the Bible with, I would be wearing these glasses. But if I was wearing these glasses when I looked out to preach to you, I would not be able to see you because everything would be a blur. And the reason I describe that is because how I look at things are impacted by literally the set of lenses that I'm looking through. In the scenario of my eyes, I need this set for certain circumstances, and I need this set for a different circumstance. In fact, in the office this week, I was reading something close, and I had these glasses on, and Ricky came to my office as she was working in the office and said, Alan, and I pulled my glasses down, and I did this number. And I was looking over her, and she's like, I'm looking over my glasses. She's like, Alan, what's that all about? You trying to look cool? I was like, no, like if I wear them here, I can't see you. And so we need to see the same thing in life that what glasses we look through make all of the difference. And in life, there's only one set of lenses that are accurate and true. In life, we don't have to change our lenses back and forth and do the bifocal thing. Rather, in life, the only lens that we should look through is what does the gospel say? The only lens we should look through is what does Scripture teach us? The only lens we should look through is what is God's word on this truth. The problem is in our society and in our own lives, if we're not careful, we begin to kind of pick and choose and we don't focus on the word of God like we should. Even with my glasses there's different scenarios where I have different results. If I don't wear glasses at all, 
that I'm not going to be able to see. I'm not literally blind, but it's, my eyesight is struggling big time. And so there are people in life that are not looking through the gospel lens at all. And so as we see in this story, they are blind to the truths of God. And then there are people who wear glasses like I do, and perhaps they're the correct glasses, but if you were to hold it up to the light, you'd see there's smudges, there's all kinds of things on it. Ashley looks at my glasses and says, Alan, why don't you ever clean your glasses? And I'm like, I do, but I can't get them clean enough. There's always fingerprints. And what happens when you have a pair of glasses on, even if they're the right set of lenses, if if they are and there's fingerprints all over it, then it's hazy vision, right? And, and there's something missing if, if, if our glasses are hazy. And then the other option is to wear glasses but wear the wrong set. And when we do, even if it's, it, it's even slightly wrong set of glasses, then there's blurred vision all around us. In this story that we're going to continue to read in John chapter 9 that we began just a moment ago, we're going to see the different characters that come into play and the set of glasses that they either aren't wearing or the wrong set of glasses or maybe they're wearing a smudged pair of glasses and what happens when we are looking through the wrong lens and how it impacts everything around us. So we saw with the disciples, their lens was who sinned, this man or his parents and Jesus says, nope, you got the wrong set of glasses on. Let's see how God is at work in this situation. Let's continue the story. Picking up in verse 8, This time we're going to go through verse 17. So the man's been healed, and the story picks up in verse 8. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen the man before as a beggar were saying, is this not the same man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it it, it is he. And others said, no, no, but he is like him. And, And the man kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And so they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Talking about Jesus. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There's that word signs, pointing to a a, a spiritual truth. How how could somebody do signs like this if they're a sinner? And there was a division among the, the, the Pharisees. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, and the man said about Jesus, he is a prophet. So the man has been healed. And the neighbors and the townspeople and the folks who had seen him as they walked to the temple and as they saw him begging there at the temple begin to see the commotion and they hear that this guy who's been blind since birth can now see and they're confused and some are saying, no, this is an imposter. Some are saying, no, this is his doppelganger. Others are saying, no, it's really him. Oh, maybe he wasn't really blind before. Others are going, maybe there's really something to this. Others are going, but how could this happen? Because uh, it's not possible and it doesn't make sense. So the neighbors and the people that knew this guy, their reaction was to take him to the Pharisees. 
The, the question is, why do they take him to the Pharisees? I mean, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the temple. Uh, the Pharisees are, are the ones that know the law and follow the law and want everybody to follow the law closely. And why are they taking this man to the Pharisees? Jesus healed him. It, it's a matter of, is he healed? Is he not? Is this the guy or not? How did it happen? Why are they going to the Pharisees? We find the answer because it says that this miracle took place on the Sabbath day. Do you remember what was special about the Sabbath day? Yes, they were to worship God, but also they were not to work. In fact, did you know that the rabbinical teachings had 39 different categories of activities that were outlawed or prohibited on the Sabbath day? I was talking to somebody there's a member here of our church uh, this week, and he was describing how his parents were really sticklers about what they did and didn't do on Sundays because they went to church. And, but there were certain activities they weren't allowed to do on Sundays. This is the same kind of picture here where you just couldn't do certain activities. Did you know that one of the 39 categories of things you could not do was need, like kneading bread? You, you couldn't put together something and, and make a dough or a paste. You couldn't put together something and make pottery or, or clay. So when Jesus healed this man, he, he broke at least a couple of, of those commandments. He's working because he caused this man to see again, but also the very act of Jesus spitting on the ground, picking up the mud and the dirt, and making it into a paste, that in and of itself was a prohibition against the Sabbath. So what's going on with the neighbors and the townspeople is this. They were focused on keeping the rules. They weren't just focused on keeping God's law and God's word because many of the rabbinical teachings actually added to the recording of God's word in the Old Testament. It was man expounding on what God's word had to say, and they were man-made rules many of the time. They were focused, here's the deal, they were focused on the law instead of the one behind the law. Why do we have the law? So that we can see who God is, so that we can love him and serve him and follow him. So in your notes, the first thing that if we're not careful, when we answer the question, what are you focused on? If we're not careful, we'll end up focusing on the things you do. You see there, point one, the things you do. We can try to put on a set of lens when we think about how can we relate to God and we can make it all about the things that we do. Here are some possible things that we can say, look at me, look at my good behavior, look at my good works. We can think, well, as long as I'm a good old boy, as long as I don't do a lot of bad stuff, as long as I'm better than my neighbor, that, that's a pretty significant thing, and, and that would be a good enough thing to do. As long as I'm helping others, I mean, if I go to the store and I see somebody fall down and I go over to help them stand up, like, that makes me a good person, and, and that's really what matters. Or, or it could be, like, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do do this or not but when I was a kid they literally would give like these perfect attendance ribbons if you were at church or at Sunday school every Sunday for 52 weeks you could get a ribbon and so maybe if I've got enough perfect attendance ribbons from church that would be a good enough thing or, or maybe if I pray before every meal or, or maybe if I at the end of the service write a check for 10% of my income and I put it as a tithe in the offering boxes. Maybe if I do these things, it would make me good with God. Maybe if you were like, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 people that were up here yesterday, or maybe more, that came up here to sweat and work on a 
church-wide work day. Maybe if I go to the work day, that would make me good with God. Maybe if I lead a Bible study, the list could go on and on and on. But the problem is that all too often we're focused on the thing we do. I'm not insinuating that some of these things, or actually most of these things, are very good things to do. But if our focal point is, look at what I did, we're missing the mark. Rather, we should focus on the one behind God's law, God himself, and seek to follow him and obey him and not just be busy about activities. Consider these words. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they begin to focus on the things they did. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do, uh, and did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then this is what Jesus says. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not saying that doing those things are bad. What he's saying is if the focal point is, look at what I did, they miss the mark. You see, the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, not D-O. And what I mean by that is all too often we want to make the gospel about what I do, when in reality the gospel is what's already been done for me. And that is that Jesus took my sin and my punishment on him and he died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven it's not my work that makes me right with god it's jesus's work on my behalf and yet even as i say that truth the reality is god still does call us to do works of ministry perhaps you're familiar with ephesians chapter 2 all too often we read verses 8 and 9 and we leave off verse 10. Let me read to you Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So it's not about what you do. It's not about the activities you do. It's not about you earning a spot with God. Rather, it says, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And yet in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E and not D-O, the reality is that once we are saved in Jesus Christ, we have a desire to obey him, and there is good works that take place, but that good works never brings salvation. So let me start this morning by encouraging you, when you think about the thing you're going to focus on, let us focus not on the things we do, but rather let us focus on Jesus. The next few verses, I'm not going to take the time to read, but verses 18 through 23 tell that the Pharisees still are not very satisfied. They're like, I don't even know if this guy was blind or not. This could be a fake guy. So they have the parents of the guy come in and they're like hey is this really your son was he really born since uh, I mean blind since birth and and if so how was he able to see again and they said yep that's our son yep he was born blind and no we have no clue what took place rather you should go ask him the reason they do that is because they're scared they're scared they're going to be excommunicated from the temple because if they say anything that says that Jesus did this then they're going to believe that Jesus is the answer and the uh, Pharisees have already said anybody that trusts in Jesus are going to be kicked out of the synagogue and so they're scared to even speak up on, on that. 
So then we pick up the story again. After nothing has been resolved, let's go to verse 24. Verses 24 through 34, we see the man come to the Pharisees again. It says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Let's pause for a second. When they say give glory to God, they are boldly saying, you are a liar. You're saying this man healed you, and we think this man, Jesus, is a sinner. There's no way this guy could have healed you. The only way you truly could be healed is if it was the work of God and not because of Jesus. Stop lying and give God the glory. And the reality is all along this man is giving God the glory because he's saying, Jesus healed me. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is bringing glory to God. So there's a bit of irony in verse 24. So in verse 25, the man answers the Pharisees, whether he's a sinner, I, I don't know. One thing I do know, and here's a famous line we've heard. Uh, it's a, a line in the song Amazing Grace. He says, this thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? I mean, how did he open your eyes? It's funny, his reaction, a little sarcasm, a little jab that he takes at him. He says, he answered them. He said, I, I've already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like, there's no way these guys want to follow Jesus. They're saying Jesus is a sinner. And he's like jabbing and prodding a little bit. Do y'all want to follow and become his disciples? Why else are you asking me a second time? Why are you so intent in hearing about this guy? It says they reviled him. They abused him. They spoke out against him. They hurled insults at him. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And so the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He's saying, it's clear to me. I can see where he came from. He's got to come from God. How else could he have healed me? Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He's saying it's clear this guy is from God. Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So, the Pharisees, Bring him in. They questioned him again. He points to the fact that Jesus did it. He points to the fact that Jesus is from God. He says, do you want to follow this guy by the name of Jesus? The Pharisees take offense at that, and they begin to say, no, 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 we're not interested in following him. We don't know if he's from God or not. Our answer is that we are children of Moses. Our father is Moses. We are disciples of Moses. We are Israelites. We are in the right line of heritage. You see, they were focused on their heritage instead of the one who gave them their lineage. If you and I are not careful, we'll do what I have on my second point, and that is if we're not careful, the thing we'll find ourselves focused on is our status. See, these Pharisees were focused on their status. It was all about who they were. They were followers of Moses. They were Israelites. And they put their value on that. The reality is the only reason they were disciples of Moses or, or descendants of Moses is because God orchestrated the events 
and put them in the line of Moses. You and I can focus on all kinds of things. We can find our status, our worth, our value in lots of ways. We can say, you know what, I'm an American. I'm a conservative. I'm, I'm popular. I'm successful. I'm smart. We can list all the things that we are. And we can boast about those things, about our status. We can do the same thing with spiritual matters. We can say, you know what, my grandpappy was a pastor, and so by golly, I'm good with God because I've been raised that way. And you know what, my parents took me to church every time the doors were open, and we can brag about our status. But as Jesus points, or sorry, as, as John points out in his record of what took place, it's not about our status, rather it's about Jesus and his work within us. Jesus himself, over in the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to read Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, but over in Luke 3, 7 through 9, we see with Jesus that he points out, hey, it's not about your heritage. It's not about your status. Rather, it's about repentance, and it's about a repentance that's genuine that produces fruit in you. I said Jesus, sorry. This is John. John the Baptist is speaking to the the people who are coming out to the baptisms. And here's what John says in Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. Father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist says, you know what? It's great to be a child of Abraham. It's great to be an Israelite. It's great to have that heritage. But it's not so much about that heritage as it is, are we repentant before a holy God? If we're not careful, we'll think that our status, our worth, our value comes in the things that we do, the things that we are, the things that we have, when in reality, the only thing that really matters is our response to a holy God. And that response should be a a response of repentance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 31, he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, a repentant person does not boast in his or her background. A repentant person boasts in the saving work of Jesus. Paul himself had all the heritage there ever could be. He said, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I I have all of the religious and heritage background that there possibly could be, but short of what Christ has done on my behalf, I am nothing, and therefore my boasting is only in Jesus. So in this story, we have the Pharisees who are boasting in their standing and their status. We have this man who's been healed who is boasting in Jesus and the work that God has done in his life. We in our lives should also boast in the Lord and not about who we think we are. Because we are nothing outside of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in our lives. So, we've looked at a couple of things about, uh, in the first two points. If we're not careful, we'll focus on the things we do instead of focusing on Jesus. 
if we're not careful, we'll focus on our status and who we think we are instead of focusing on Jesus. And if we do those things, then that third point you see on your notes, we will totally miss out on. You see, if we focus on the wrong things, it will cause us to not see Jesus, who is, as the notes say, the light of the world. So whenever you think about what are you focusing on, I'm going to ask you to consider in your life, are you focusing on the things that you do and your good works and your good behavior and your, your belief system? Or are you focused on the, the, your status and the things that you can kind of claim about who you are? Or are you going to focus on the spiritual truths of Scripture and that is that Jesus is, as the light of the world, the only hope for salvation and purpose in life? Look down in verse 35 in John chapter 9. We're going to pick up the story and finish the chapter in verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast the man out of the temple. And having seen, found him, sorry, he said to the man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he? Who is the Son of Man, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. We'll talk about that in just a second. The man replies or responds in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he began to worship Jesus. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Well, now the Pharisees heard all of that. They're taking exception to what Jesus says. So it says, some Pharisees near him heard these things and said to Jesus, are you saying that we also are blind? And the way they ask the question is, not are we blind, tell us if we're blind. It's like, by golly, we are not blind. How dare you claim that we are blind? Here's what Jesus responded with. Verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. See, the biggest miracle that took that place that day was not the physical healing of a man that was born blind. As amazing as that miracle is, that's not the biggest miracle that day. The biggest work of God on that day was using the physical healing of this man so that this man now not only sees physically, but more importantly, he sees spiritually. And so the miracle begins to happen as we see the light bulb come on in this guy's life as he begins to understand more and more about who Jesus is. Did you see that there were multiple layers? Like he got healed and so the neighbors and the acquaintances are asking, what's up with that? And then he goes into uh, the Pharisees and they're asking what's going on. Then the parents come in and then the, the man comes back to the Pharisees again. There's multiple layers of where he's being questioned and the story is recounted every time. It's told the same way. This guy named Jesus, he took some mud, put it on my face, told me to go wash. He healed me. But we see the developing faith of this man at each of these po venture points. Look, at, if you don't mind, at John chapter 9 in verse 11. Whenever he's asked the question, who did this, he just as a matter of fact in an impersonal kind of way, his answer was, it was the man called Jesus. He's acknowledging the true accounts of that day. Not necessarily faith demonstrated here, maybe so, maybe not, but it's just a matter of fact, the man called Jesus. And then whenever they ask him in verse 17, okay, who do you think he is? The, he takes another step and he says, he is a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf or speaks for God. So he's now beginning to identify him more than just a man by the name of Jesus. He's actually a prophet of God. Then in verse 33, he basically says, this man 
is from God. Because if he wasn't from God, he wouldn't be able to do this miracle. And so he's saying not only is he a prophet or a spokesman for God, he actually is from God. He's beginning to see that Jesus is God in the flesh. And then in verse 38, whenever Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, tell me who this Son of Man is. And Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. We see in verse 38, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of Man. And he fell down and worshipped Jesus. So the biggest miracle that day was not his physical sight. The biggest miracle that day was his spiritual sight that Jesus gave him. You may be wondering, well, what's this deal with the Son of Man? Like, I've heard that phrase before, but I've never really understood what it is. Or maybe you've never heard that phrase before. Or maybe you've never stopped to think about, it. what is the deal with this term, Son of Man? If you want to, you can turn back to the Old Testament the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we see the phrase or the title, Son of Man, used. I want you to know that over in John chapter 9, when it says the Son of Man, the definite article V is there. So he's not just a Son of Man. He's not just any old somebody. Rather, he is the Son of Man. When we go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we begin to see a, a vision that is noticed and then it's described, and here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, here it is, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So let me kind of put some puzzle pieces together for you. In the book of Daniel, we're introduced to one who is like a son of man, and in the description we see some elements of of divinity as well as humanity and then that that doctrine or understanding of the son of man began to develop over time and the jewish people began to identify and see based on what we see in daniel chapter 7 that the son of man is a messianic title the messiah the promised one it became full of meaning and the people of israel knew that the Son of Man was the one who would be the promised one to come and reveal God to them. And so here's Jesus. He's, he's taught this man and shown him who he is by his power over a physical blindness and then begins to point out to the fact that not only am I just some kind of miracle worker, rather I am the Son of Man, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who has come to reveal God to you. Do you believe in me? And the man falls down and worships him. So in this story, this true account of a man who was blind from birth, we start with a guy who's blind and cannot see a thing. And then whenever Jesus, the light of the world, shows up, he takes him and transforms him from spiritual blindness to true sight. And that sight is not because of anything this man has done. This sight is not because of any heritage this man has. This sight is nothing to do with him. It's all about what Jesus has done for him. So the man went from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. 
And then on the flip side, look at verse 41. Jesus makes it clear that the Pharisees were further entrenched in their spiritual blindness. They claim they could see. Jesus says you can't. They claim that they knew God. Jesus says you don't. You may be thinking, well, what in the world? I mean, the, the, the Pharisees knew the scriptures. They knew all about God. They belonged to the chosen nation of Israel. So how could Jesus describe them as blind? The answer is given to us in verse 41. They don't recognize their blindness. They don't see their need to turn to Jesus and repent of their sins and trust in him. They are so focused on themselves and self-centeredness. They are so focused on following the law and keeping the law perfectly. They're so focused on their background and their heritage and their status that they don't truly see Jesus for who he is. So Jesus says, you are blind. I mean, here they are. They're standing in the very presence of the Son of Man. They're standing in the very presence of the great uh, light. I am the light. And they are arguing with him. They're not repenting. They're not submitting to him. They are standing their ground and saying, let me tell you how this goes. Everything that takes place in this story, everything that Jesus says in verse 41 points to the fact that Jesus came to bring spiritual sight to those who are able to acknowledge their spiritual blindness. What makes us spiritually blind? The thing that makes us spiritually blind is that we want to call the shots and live life like we want to. We don't want to obey God. And that causes us to be sinners. Every single one of us chooses our own path and we sin against a perfect, holy God. And because of our sin, we are eternally, forever separated from a good, holy, perfect God. And in that state, we are blind and we think we're okay. We think as long as we do the right things, as long as we have the right heritage, as long as we stand up for the right things, as long as we do, 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 or as long as we are this, that, or the other, that we are okay with God. And in reality, the only thing that makes us right with God is repenting of our sins turning from our ways and trusting in Jesus as our Savior. So, what we see in this whole passage comes down to kind of at the very bottom of your notes, a bottom line, if you will, that focusing on Jesus changes everything. So my question for all of us is this. What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on your own efforts and your status? Or are you focused on the one, Jesus Christ, who brings spiritual sight? Are you turning a blind eye to the truth claims of Scripture that point to Jesus? Or are you focused on the correct understanding of who Jesus is and who we are in our need for a Savior? It's time for us to have an about face and begin to obey the God of the Scriptures. You see, whenever we choose or realize that we need to focus on Jesus, we'll be able to begin to see everything clearly. And we can stop changing lenses. We can see that Jesus is the only one who shows us a correct understanding of life. 
see Jesus. Whenever we focus on him, we see who God is. Whenever we focus on Jesus, not only do we see who God is, we see who we are and our very need for him. And then we'll also see that the there is sinfulness in trying to put on another set of lenses and looking at the world through a worldly frame of reference or a worldly frame of ideology when in reality the only frame of reference we should have is the frame of what Jesus says to us. So I'm going to ask you to take a next step today. In just a moment we will have a time of prayer where you can come up and pray at the altar or pray with me. I I encourage you to take this seriously. I encourage you not to go out the back door. I I encourage you not to mentally check out. I I encourage you not to begin to think about what you're going to eat for lunch. Instead, I would ask you to consider the question, what am I focused on? And as you answer that question, you're going to begin to see your need to take some kind of next step. So let me walk through some next steps. You can even um, record your next steps if you would like to on the back of this prayer request card and drop that in the offering box in a minute so that we can pray alongside of you. Here's first step. In a, in a room this size, in, in an in a internet this size, there is no doubt someone this morning that the step you need to take is salvation. Have you taken the step to trust in Jesus and in him alone for salvation? I'm not talking about about, um, some set of beliefs you have. I'm not talking about living a a churchy kind of life. I'm not talking about were you raised in church. I'm talking about have you trusted in Jesus to take away your spiritual blindness so that you can see him? Today, this very day, some of you, even right now, you you need to come and share with me that you want to trust in Jesus for salvation. Do not delay. This is the most important step that you need to take. Some of you have fooled yourself and you're like the Pharisees and you are blind and you think you aren't and yet this morning God is beginning to convict you and prick your heart to tell you it's time to say yes to him for salvation. Next step, number two, that I want to share with you. Some of you need to take the step of studying the Scripture in a different kind of way. And what I mean by that is if we're not careful, when we study the Scripture, we will have the wrong set of lenses on. I'm going to look at God's Word, and I'm going to find the three easy steps I need for a better marriage. I'm going to look at God's Word and find out the three steps I need to be a better parent. I'm not saying that God's Word doesn't speak to those things, but what I am saying is this. Our starting point, our frame of reference when beginning to read God's Word must always be who is God? Who is He? Let me see His glory in this text. And as I see His glory in this text, it will begin to then apply to my life. But the starting point is not myself. I'm not the hero of the passage. God is the chief goal in our scripture engagement is the glory of God. And so as we study God's word, some of us need a set of different lenses It's not about me. It's not self-centered reading of God's word and studying his words. It is all about Jesus. Here's another step, number three. Some of you need to take the step of church membership. The way that we do that is we have a class. It's happening, um, uh, is it next? No, it's the 10th. The 10th. We're having a class on the 10th where you can join uh, our church. And why is church membership a big deal? Because if you decide to join this church, then you have a church family to love and to be loved by, and you can all, we can, as a church family, have the right set of lenses on. Another next step some of us need to take is sign up for a discipleship class. 
You may be wondering, why are we having these discipleship classes? I mean, I heard something about there were some classes on Sunday night and Sunday morning and even a women's Bible study on Thursday night. Are we just doing that to have activities? The answer is no. Are we doing it just to get more head knowledge? No. The reason we have these discipleship classes is so that we can have a framework to filter everything through the gospel lens. And I can't think of many better ways than to plug into one of these, one of these discipleship classes. The classes that we're having, you can learn what it means to be a, a Christ-centered parent. Not just be a better parent, but to see it through the lens of God's word. That happens on Sunday mornings. Some of you may need to engage with theology or apologetics and understanding how it applies to everything going on in life. You need to come to the, the Everyone's a Theologian uh, Bible study. And then others of you, you, you want to study the Bible. You want to make it about understanding who God is and his glory, but you don't really know where to begin. Well, we've got a, a class on how to study the Bible. It's some Bible study methods, and that happens on Sunday nights. I would encourage you that some of you need to take this, these discipleship classes and when we dismiss, go to the registration table that's right out there in the entryway and sign up for a discipleship class. The reason we're doing this is so that we can have the right set of frames on. Another next step is a hope group. This past week we started hope groups, which are small groups that meet in church, church members' homes. They went really well this week. We had a great time. There are eight groups and we had a good turnout, but we need more of you in those groups. We would love to see, we want to see 100% of our church membership signed up and actively engaged and involved in a hope group. Why, you ask? So that you can have a group of people that you can walk through life together and hold each other accountable to wear the lens of the gospel instead of worldly lenses. We need each other. And if you're not in a hope group, I'm not guilting you to get into one. I'm saying you're missing out, and those groups are missing out as well. Sign up for a hope group. We've got a group that meets on Sundays at 4 o'clock. Maybe Sunday's your best time. Maybe you'd rather not drive after dark. That's the one you need to be in. Sunday's at 4 o'clock. We've got one on Monday evening. We've got two on Tuesday evening. We've got, I think, four on Wednesday evening, and they all start around the 6 or 6.30 time slot. What you need to do, as soon as church is over with, you need to head to the registration table out there and sign up for a hope group. That's the next step some of you need to take. And then I encourage 100% of our church members to be here next Sunday night. This is a way for our church body to come together so that we can, as a church family, have our focus on the right thing. Here at our church, we talk about being a disciple, making disciples, being the church to the glory of God. That's wonderful, but how do we get there? What programs, what activities, what thought processes do we have? What set of lenses do we put on so that we can walk through that vision statement? I encourage you, I implore you, I, I ask of you, if you are a member of our church body, be here next Sunday night, as the elders will be sharing some important things about what it means to live out a gospel-centered life in the context of this local body. I know I walked through a lot of next steps, but there is a next step that each and every one of us can and should take, and I encourage you to do that. I'm going to lead us in prayer. At the end of the prayer, we're going to stand, we're going to sing together. I'll be available here at the front. The altar is wide open. Come and pray. Seek God's leadership. It's time for us to stop focusing on the wrong things and get our focus back on the right thing, and that is Jesus Christ, his word, and the gospel. All other lenses are blurred, confusing, and empty. We need to see the light of the world. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we have had a chance to be together today and to worship as a church family. 
God, we thank you for this true account of what took place that day when a man was healed of his, of his physical blindness. And yet, the more important thing that he was able to see spiritually. God, I pray that in this very room and on the internet right now that we would consider the things that we are focused on, that we would repent of the wrong things that we're focused on and get our focus back on you. God, I pray that you'd give confidence and courage to those who need to say yes to salvation. God, I pray that you'd give clarity for those that are considering membership. God, I, I, encourage, I, I pray that you would encourage folks to sign up for a discipleship class so that they can have the right gospel lens. I, I pray that you'd bring all of our church body together to be a part of, of a hope group. God, I pray that you'd give us a wonderful next week of, of vision night. God, I pray that you'd help all of us study your word clearly and understand who you are and who, what your glory is all about. God, we ask that all of these things would be done for your glory, for your sake, and for your name, and not for ourselves. It's in the powerful, amazing name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?